and welcome to another episode of the Peace Production, the podcast from the Organization for World Peace, where we examine issues currently threatening human security. In today's podcast, we will analyze U.S.-China relations before, during, and after COVID-19, and what the new world order might look like. Thus, we will carefully examine what the nature of the relationship between these two superpowers has been during the last years, and the role they are casting internationally with regards to institutions such as the World Health Organization or the World Trade Organization. We will also take a look at how the pandemic may represent a turning point in their relationship and what the future might hold for the United States, China, and the rest of the world. My name is Andrew Bernstein, and joining me today are our two in-house correspondents, Monica Sager and Catherine Everest. Hi, Monica. Hello, how are you? Very good, how about yourself? I'm doing well, thanks. Hi, Kate. Hi, Andrew, how are you? Very good. Okay, Kate, let me start with you. What was the dynamic of the relationship between the United States and China before COVID-19? So before COVID-19, the relationship between the United States and China, it's always been a little bit of a strange one. Since the arrival of Donald Trump, it's become a little bit more complicated and tensions have sort of spiked since his um, election. To do with this is the incredible growth that China has experienced over the last few years. The IMF actually predicted that China would overcome the US as the world's first economy in 2016. It didn't eventually take place, however, it's still, I guess, not out of the question. Um, This has created a new international dialectic. China is essentially challenging America's predominance and there's misunderstandings about each other's actions and intentions that could lead to a bit of a deadly trap identified by the ancient Greek historian Thucydides. As he explained, it was the rise of Athens and the fear that this installed in Sparta that made war inevitable. The past 500 years have seen 16 cases in which a rising power threatened to displace a ruling one. It's a bit ironic that Trump's protectionist and nationalist vision has now upended the international order, especially seen as the US has been so instrumental in orchestrating this. He has derided traditional allies such as NATO, members of the EU. The role of the United States as the foster of globalization is changing. International trade, transnational institutions are feeling this, such as the World Trade Organization and the World Health Organization. And China consequently has sort of seen this as a bit of an opportunity to project itself as the new world leader. Moving into coronavirus, Monica, what was the US's response to coronavirus? So actually, it was back December 31st, 2019, that the first English language news account by the Associated Press um, came out saying that China is investigating this outbreak of respiratory illness in the central city of Wuhan. So the CDC in the United States had all these alerts saying that it's a serious issue, but it wasn't until January 21st when we had the first case of coronavirus in the U.S. that was confirmed that it started to shape what was happening in the U.S. At that time, Trump still said that China is still in very good shape and that it's going to be handled very well in the U.S. Trump administrators were meeting at this point. They're trying to figure out what to do. And at one point, they were talking about screening flights, whether they should be banning flights in general, possibly to save themselves some time, possibly to even help with the consequences for the economy. But still... They sided with the aides saying that they needed to protect our health and that the problem was so that the government wasn't prepared for this extra time. They didn't have a plan per se into what to do in the coming days to help prepare the United States citizens. 
So January 31st, Trump suspended the entry into the United States by foreign nationals who traveled to China within the last 14 days. And quickly upon this time, China has been using the sequence for COVID-19, giving availability, um, testing availability as well. But the CDC in the United States decided to create their own test. The problem, though, was that many of the places that were doing these tests and administering the tests throughout the United States were having problems validating the tests that the CDC created. So the CDC was like, okay, send them back to me. We will validate for you and we'll get you the correct results. The problem with that, though, is that it became a big backlog by sending all the samples to Atlanta and taking time to test it and then get the results. This means that the country does not know how many people have had it for those multiple weeks that we had that lag time. But researchers in Washington state decided to make their own test and were ready to help during the first few weeks of February. And unfortunately, they didn't get the approval from the CDC to test. And finally, when they did get the result that one person did have coronavirus, they had to shut that down because it wasn't approved by the FDA. So they had this problem of sitting on information, people already being diagnosed with coronavirus, and it all accumulated on March 13th when Trump televised an address stating that it's a national emergency in the United States and we have coronavirus. Since then, you have a bunch of different governors in different states having protocols. So some to this day are still in the red zone, they call it, where everybody's still staying at home. But slowly but surely, we're starting to go clear um, in the green. I know personally in my state, we are in yellow now. So we're allowed to go to a certain thing. Some restaurants like the patios are opening up and that sort of thing. But going beyond that, um, Andy, do you want to explain what the narrative in China has been? Sure. Well, in China, it really depends on how well the Chinese government's COVID-19 narrative holds up. It really depends on who knew what and when. There's a general sense that the Chinese government was very slow to react to the initial outbreak of the pandemic, and that during the span of this time, it has tried to conceal different pieces of information that show that not only it you know, was slow to react, but it also it has obscured any kind of real investigation into the situation. It is, if this kind of narrative gains traction inside China, that's going to be a big problem for Xi's legitimacy and reputation. One of the first instances of public anger and grief against the government in China, which was the biggest and most public in many years, took place in February when the doctor Li Wenliang died of COVID-19. This was a very famous case around the world because he had made dire warnings to fellow doctors in December that a new SARS-like virus had begun to spread. However, he was accused by the police of making false and alarming comments and was investigated for spreading rumors. This really shows to what the Chinese government's attitude has been, both internally and to the rest of the world. Analysts say that it's hard to recall an event in recent years that has triggered as much online grief, rage, and mistrust against the Chinese government. News of Dr. Li's death became the, ten, the top trending topic on Chinese social media, garnering an estimated 1.5 billion views. His death has also brought demands for action with Wuhan government owes Dr. Li Wenliang an apology and we want freedom of speech among the hashtags trending. However, both hashtags were quickly censored. When the BBC searched Weibo early on Friday, on that Friday, hundreds of thousands of 
of commons had been wiped. Only a handful remained. This really, again, proves that the Chinese government has tried since the beginning to shape the narrative so that it fits uh, the idea that it had everything under control. In its, push, in, its, sorry, in its push to shape that narrative, China has expelled journalists from Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and the New York Times ever since, violating decades, decades of tradition. Why? Well, China says coverage of, is overly critical and biased to the Chinese government and the coronavirus, critical of China in general, and sorry, President Xi Jinping and capital leaders are not true. This definitely has a lot to do, again, with the way that China has tried to, in a way, project its image internationally as a country that was very quick to respond, that was open to the rest of the world in terms of the method to deal with the virus, and also in terms of, uh, in a way, creating and supporting uh, the response in other countries. Well, uh, there has been a lot of international push uh, started by Australia and then uh, continued by President Trump's accusations that China was mainly responsible for obscuring the investigation. And after a lot of pressure, uh, President Xi Jinping agreed China would support a World Health Organization-led investigation, but again, in its own terms and conditions. Basically, these were two, that it happened after the pandemic was over and it would focus on more than just looking at China's actions. China had pushed back hard against such an inquiry and it has uh, ever since tried to control the narrative internationally as well. Let's now take a look at uh, how the international role of both countries has changed over the last years by analyzing the nature of their relationship to the World Health Organization and the World Trade Organization. Kate, would you like to comment on that? Yeah, sure. So the US's relationship with the World Trade Organization has been degrading over the past couple of years. The US is an original member of the World Trade Organization and was a leading force in the creation of, of the organization. Due to the US's prolonged position as the globe's top economy, the exports, export sectors of many countries benefit from the trade relationship with the US. And as a result of this, the US holds quite a dominant position within the World Trade Organization, organization and has been used to wielding this power over decision-making and policy output. Now, since China joined the World Trade Organization on the 11th of December in 2001, uh, this has become a little bit more complicated. It's a move that would in the future con contribute to a much more strained relationship between the US and the World Trade Organization. China joined the World Trade Organization looking to secure a place for the country in an ever globalizing world. And when this happened, the US envisioned that China would get on board with the US-led liberal democratic order and move away from its communist model, uh, at least within trade hasn't exactly been the case. Today, China is the world's second largest economy behind the US and in 2009 became the world's largest exporting nation. Since joining the WTO, China's trade in goods has leaped from 516.4 billion in 2001 to $4.1 trillion in 2017. In 2016, China filed a dispute against the US and EU whilst it was seeking recognition as a market economy. This is something that the US wasn't pleased with. China maintains a status as a developing country, which awards it special and differential treatment within the WTO. And this is also something that the US has sort of had significant pushback against the WTO for. There's also complaints from the US made against the WTO that there's an unwillingness by the Chinese government to fully comply with dispute settlement rulings. Now, it's difficult to know whether Trump's actions um, 
are a retaliation to the WTO's inability to rein China in. However, he seems to be taking his frustrations out on the appellate body of the World Trade Organization, which is the dispute settlement system. Um, so the appellate body is a panel of seven persons that hears panels from an initial panel's report on a dispute between WTO members. So he complains that the appellate body has overstepped its authority by making new rules and is now blocking the appointment of two new judges to the appellate body, meaning it is now unable to operate and function properly and issue rulings. So without an operational appellate body, countries who decide to appeal a case can now essentially block the decision made because there'll be no higher authority to assess their appeal. Now, moving on to the World Health Organization. So the US has been a contributing member of the World Health Organization since it was established in 1948. They've primarily worked together to keep polio at bay, manage the spread of tuberculosis. The US also largely contributes to outbreak and crisis response funding through the use of the US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Prior to COVID-19, the US was the largest donor to the World Health Organization. Across the 2018 and 2019 budget, the US pledged to contribute $893 million. Since COVID, the US has gone against the grain when it comes to reactions as to how the World Health Organization has handled coronavirus. While majority of the countries have praised the World Health Organization for their handling, the US has gone the opposite way. Instead, it maintains the World Health Organization is currently a puppet of China's agenda in relation to the coronavirus. So there's been multiple accusations from Donald Trump. For example, in a letter sent to WHO on the 18th of May, he accused the organisation of remaining quiet about the initial spread and outbreak of coronavirus. He says that the World Health Organisation has succumbed to pressure from China in their recommendation to not declare that the coronavirus outbreak uh, an emergency. The relationship between World Health Organisation and the US is now currently strained, uh, very much more so now. Um, and Andy, moving on now to China and China's relationship with the World Trade Organization and World Health Organization. Well, I think it's crucial, as we said in the beginning, to understand the dynamic that has been happening over the last years, especially since the arrival of President Trump, as we said. China, ironically, is playing the same rules that were created by the United States as the main foster of international institutions and is trying to fill the void created by America first protectionist and nationalist Trump's policies, right? So in terms of the World Trade Organization, since joining it, China has been one of the organization's most active members and its economy has become an integral link in global supply chains. Yet Beijing, as you said, has not instituted deep systematic reforms and its mixed compliance with the WTO dispute rulings has at times challenged the WTO's underlying norms and this is part of the problem that you know, has arise with the United States in terms of the disputes, right? China experienced explosive trade growth after joining the WTO. It made numerous changes to its economy in order to comply with the WTO rules. And it's important when one examines China's activity to look at the dispute settlement system, which plays the central role in the WTO's function and, and is probably the most active and useful mechanism of the World Trade Organization. As I said, it offers good insight into China's complex relationship with the institution. Between 2002 and 2019, China was involved in 65 disputes. This makes China the third most active member within the DSS over this period behind the US and the European Union. 
This gives an idea of the growing role that China has played in, in international trade disputes and its increasing influence in the world economic order. In terms of China's relationships to the World Health Organization, which is right now at the center of the international debate, and really is going to be very important at how the world looks at these two powers. As you said, the World Health Organization is facing rising international criticism over outsized Chinese influence in the organization's response to the ongoing COVID-19 outbreak. The WHO Director General Tedros Ghebreyesus, outspoken advocate for the Chinese government's COVID-19 response, and has praised the country's top leadership for its openness to sharing information with the WHO and other countries. I think that when one looks at China's influence in the World Health Organization, it is also evident in terms of the organization's treatment of Taiwan. Since China acceded to the UN in 1971, it has periodically blocked Taiwan's WHO membership on the grounds that it's a democratically governed island, which is part of China. So this is quite important because Taiwan has not been able to access, you know, its own internal mechanisms in the analysis of an outbreak such as the COVID-19 and, and the virus. So it really has had to filter all the information and its response through China. And we all know that they have a really complicated relationship, right? I think what has changed and, and, and the major uh, issue here is in terms of the um, voluntary donations the countries give to the World Health Organization, which are a key element for the organization to actually balance, its, balance out its budget, right? Uh, China's w Health, uh, World Health Organization contributions have grown by 52% since 2014, right, to approximately $86 million. This is largely due to China's increase in assessed contributions, which are based on a country's economic development and population. However, China has also slightly increased voluntary contributions from $8.7 million in 2014 to approximately 10.2 million in 2019. So when one looks at other countries, you know, analysis and assessments of what is happening at the World Health Organization, they definitely find an argument there that because of the increasing uh, role of China in funding the organization, it might be skewed in the defense of its response to such an outbreak. Okay, so next question is for Monica. Has the coronavirus had any impact on the relationship between the United States and China geostrategically? Definitely. So I think before we get into how the coronavirus has affected it, we have to look at what happened before the coronavirus. So first, there was definitely this ongoing crisis of the American global leadership being divided both politically and societally, and almost all of them were unanimously anti-China. They definitely have that problem. Then you have China's power projecting in Asia that it was growing, but there was this balance of power shifting in Asia as well. The US power projection relative to China was diminishing, but there was no policies to how out of confrontation with China. Regarding the World Trade Organization, there was this incident where it was said the World Trade Organization has prevented the U.S. from protecting its workers and exerting its influence as the world's most powerful economy, even though the organization. So Trump's advisors have pointed out to the WTO that it has this inability to confront China as a reason for why Trump's trade with Beijing is happening. The WTO rules have not been written with an economy like China's in mind. So critics are saying that the organization has failed to adequately police Beijing, 
we're using a mix of private enterprises as well as state support to dominate global industries. So overall, the United States has long won the majority of the case. So looking after coronavirus, there has been a lot of dispute during coronavirus of the information that's been coming around, um, both for the WHO as well as the WTO. Early research said it was from the bats, and the problem though is that there's also now skepticism that there was a level four lab, which is just a few miles from the market that people are saying that these animals or gave them the virus from. And at this lab, they're studying coronaviruses and it's the same strain as this pandemic. So many theories have made their way to the White House and it was pretty early on when this happened. But the problem for this is that the CIA is concluding that China is not being honest about the numbers in Wuhan. So by doing that, officials are making estimates of how serious the disease is based off of China's original numbers. So the mortality rate is way where it could have been. In, in mind of the intelligence officials, if China is lying about the numbers, they're lying about the mortality statistics, this could be lying about the origins of the virus as well and could cause this bigger issue globally as well as between these two countries we're talking about. So in Hong Kong specifically, Trump has accused the Chinese government of a comprehensive pattern of misconduct and ordering U.S. officials to begin the process of revoking Hong Kong's special status under U.S. law. So this will definitely change our, the relationship between the two countries after the virus. Trump's announcement was followed by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's statement, which was earlier that week, that Hong Kong was no longer sufficiently autonomous from the mainland China, which meant that it did not deserve separate treatment. So under the 1997 handover agreement with the United Kingdom, China had agreed to preserve the former British colony's democratic system for at least 50 years. But now due to Xi's decision to impose security legislation on Hong Kong rather than by working through the territory's local legislation, it's marking this collapse of one country, two systems. So it's definitely this new approach that's causing a rift this also is a violation of the rules of the WTO, according to China, and is removing the special status would affect the treaty the two countries agreed upon regarding commercial relationships and export controls. So moving forward, this could lead to more friction between the world's two biggest economies, especially in the wake of a two-year trade war that has been occurring since Trump's presidency. But Kate, do you want to talk about how China's role as a potential global financial stabilizer is coming out of the virus? Yeah, yeah, sure. So there's a bit of a theory that because China was the first affected by the coronavirus pandemic, they will likely be first to recover, which sort of puts them at the forefront of recovery and pits them slightly as a leader in starting to, I guess, bring a sense of normality back to the world. And this is particularly relevant in terms of the economy uh, in a way that they are positioned to sort of offer a bit of a blueprint for the rest of the world. So because China is a slightly more protected economy due to high levels of protectionist policies, throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, Chinese stock markets have taken less of a hit in comparison to the US's. 
On the 20th of March, major US stock indexes actually closed out their worst week since the 2008 global financial crisis. And in particularly, the S&P 500 has dropped nearly 29% for the year so far in comparison to the Shanghai Composite that has fallen just 10%. Chen Yulu, a vice governor at the People's Bank of China, has said China plans to take advantage of their forefront position to help the globe get through the economic difficulties as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. They plan to do this by keeping domestic financial markets stable. The Chinese government has also said they are open to offering advice and guidance to other countries on macroeconomic policy coordination that is modelled off of Chinese domestic economy. This will be aimed particularly at developing economies hit hardest by the virus. So that gives you a bit of an idea of how China could potentially take a bit of a role as a, as a global leader in, in lifting the globe out of the financial struggles that have come about because of COVID. However, there are some potential hindrances to this plan. So, of course, economic growth has actually slowed in China as a result of COVID, but no one really knows at this stage, obviously, how hard COVID-19 is going to hit the globe financially, and this includes China. Furthermore, under the One Belt, One Road initiative, China's development strategy, it has lent up to $350 billion to countries for infrastructure development and investments. Even those not considered to be high-risk debtors now will struggle to pay back loans that were awarded under the One Belt, One Road initiative as a result of COVID-19. So this could put a little bit of a strain on the Chinese economy in, and affect their role as, as a potential global financial leader. So it's kind of hard to know what will happen with China. Okay, one last question. What does this mean for the relationship of the two countries in the future, in your opinion? So I'll, I'll focus my answer on the World Health Organization in terms of China and the U.S.'s relationship in regards to that. So the U.S. hasn't done themselves any favors by straining their relationship with the World Health Organization. Them pulling out their funding and them essentially breaking ties with the World Health Organization it makes it more likely, and especially with China's continuing investment in the World Health Organization, it makes it more likely that if an argument sort of were to spark between the US and China over the origins of coronavirus in the World Health Organization, the World Health Organization may be more likely to support China, or maybe that's stretching the argument too far, but they are now less likely to support the US after Trump's behavior towards them. And as you said, Andy, President Xi agreed to support a World Health Organization-led investigation, um, however, only after the pandemic is over. So who knows how long that's going to take. This stipulation, if it's adhered to, is likely to buy China a fair amount of time to potentially make deals to try and avoid investigations or even try and cover up any details relevant to the origins of the novel coronavirus, should there be anything to cover up. So... Also, in the meantime, whilst waiting for the pandemic to end, if China indeed does become a bit of a leader in terms of um, leading the globe out of the financial difficulty as a result of COVID, it will improve relations with the World Health Organization and provide them a little bit, I guess, muscle power to try and influence not investigating origins of coronavirus. So I believe by pulling funds from the World Health Organization, America has limited its power within the organization to campaign for an independent investigation. And I think it's also ceded some of its power to China, which China will use to contribute to their rise of power internationally. And this is likely to only create further tension between the US and China. 
And so now I guess it's probably good to look at how the relationship between the US and China is affected in terms of the World Trade Organization. Monica, did you want to fill us in on that? Sure. So officials in other countries share the same concerns that America has, particularly related to China. But the other thing on top of that is that they disagree with Trump's administrations and their methods. So they're arguing that the U.S. and other countries should fix the problems and strengthen the global trade system rather than abandoning it. And this definitely applies to what you were just talking about, Kate, because it's better to have all of this all together in a global community, in a sense, um, rather than everybody being broken apart. And these institutions, though, are clearly flawed and need improvement, but they are essential mechanisms in the global world, like I was saying. So the solution to these tensions, though, comes from reinforcing and renewing these institutions and not abandoning them, like you keep saying. But altogether, Andy, I'm wondering if you can share what could happen with the relationship in the future. Yeah, in terms of geopolitical and strategic role of China and the United States into the future, I think that everything that has happened over the last years and everything that is happening right now in both countries is going to affect the way that the world looks at them. As you said, the narrative that has to do with the way that China has actually dealt with the outbreak and how and whether it actually has shared all the information with the rest of the world might hurt China and the way the rest of the world looks at China as a potential world leader. However, the United States is also uh, involved in a very, very deep political crisis ever since the arrival of Donald Trump. It's deeply polarized and well, we have all seen what's been happening over the last days with the huge demonstrations throughout the entire country and how a lot of people have a deep distrust towards the democratic functioning of the country, right? So in terms of how the world looks, for example, what's happening with Hong Kong, uh, of course, there's a lot of criticism from both the United States and the international world order of, you know, the new security law that they're passing and how they're curtailing lots of, you know, freedoms and rights for the Hongkongese, right? But China has also made it clear that it does not accept any criticism from the United States because when one looks at how the United States is dealing with its internal protests, and how actually there's a lot of police brutality in response to uh, the way that they have actually dealt with, for example, the African-American community. China is also projecting that the United States has lost part of its essence as a world leader. So this strategic battle in terms of the narrative and the role that they're going to play is going to be essential, not just for both countries, but for the rest of the world. If one looks at it from the United States uh, perspective and its diplomacy, they're going to have to try to avoid a permanent confrontation between the United States and China, which would be bad for the U.S., for China, and for the rest of the world. Um, in terms of how China might deal with its internal problems in the future, I think that there is no sufficient evidence, even in despite there's information that China has not dealt with or been clear about the outbreak and the pandemic, there's no real signs that the Chinese population might rise against the Communist Party and, and the current status quo. So in that sense, the role that the United States is taking and what might happen within the United States internally is also going to have a lot to say about what might happen between both countries and the rest of the world. But again, if one looks at it from the perspective of the United States, I think that it needs to take several steps in order to kind of like 
make and have a coherent position both internally and externally as to what their role is gonna be in international and transnational institutions, and also as to what their relationship with China is going to be. If they want to control the narrative and reinstate themselves as the world leaders, at least in you know, people's minds for, for the rest of the countries, first and most obviously, they're gonna to have to strengthen their institutions domestically, and they're gonna to try to have to deal with the polarization. I think uh, a lot of people are paying attention to the next election in November, and what might happen with that. I mean, if one looks at the United States popularity around the world, it has really gone down ever since the arrival of Donald Trump. He is a very deeply unpopular figure for the rest of the world and a very divisive figure within the United States. So they have to deal with that divide in order to start projecting a more coherent and consistent image around the world. In order to also project that uh, leadership, it's gonna to have to start again, implementing a foreign policy that is consistent and coherent and that uh, aligns with the values and institutions that have been essential in American's, leader, America's leadership throughout you know, the last 80 years. They also want to start strengthening their alliances with uh, their traditional allies because ever since the arrival of Donald Trump, there's been a lot of deriding and accusing and blaming towards countries and institutions that have been always by the side of the United States, such as the European Union or NATO. So if they don't start, you know, going back to multilateralism and start to implement those kind of soft power strategies that have given the United States the role that it has right now, it really might fall behind and leave that point for China to fill in. Again, it would be really important to change the, in a way, the method of negotiating with China, while many of the critiques and, and of the problems and argumentations that the United States has made in terms of their complaints towards China are very valid and solid, but withdrawing from international institutions that are essential to the global world that we live in is not the right response. So they are going to want to, in a way, reshape the method that they have in order to deal with China and the way it's growing because it's really important that they find a path for cooperation on global issues such as climate change and uh, global terrorism. If they don't and escalations continue between both countries, uh, who knows where it might end. It might end in a, you know, kind of a cold war again, or it might, you know, even end an open conflict, which is something that we definitely from the rest of the world and especially from the organization from world peace think would be the worst outcome of this global and Chinese and American escalation since the beginning, before and after the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, wouldn't you, uh, Kate and Monica, agree that from the point of our organization, we really believe that it is crucial and essential that despite the fact that some of these transnational institutions like the ones that we have actually looked at today, you know, their deficiencies and their flaws and the fact that they're very bureaucratic and sometimes corrupt, Instead of withdrawing from them, it is necessary for the United States, China, and the rest of the world to try to implement changes and renew them so that we can all have fair and equal access to a global society. Absolutely. At the Organization for World Peace, I know that we definitely stand, obviously, for world peace. So as we've been talking about already, the organizations in place, WHO, as well as WTO, definitely have their benefits. While there might be some detriments to them and might be some work that needs to be changed, both 
China and America can work together to make that happen and make this a better global prosperous initiative. Yeah, I agree. I think it's interesting that a, a country that has pride, like prided itself so much on a liberal agenda of working together as um, a liberalised global community is now, in fact, the one that's in a way sort of tearing at the fabrics of that. From a perspective of promoting peace within the international community, if the dispute settlement systems or the negotiation tables that um, are in place to contribute to world peace aren't working as you say it's 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 up to them to come to the table negotiate and sort of like have some diplomatic values about them and try and work towards reform yeah i agree we we totally live in a global society and i feel like every, every single person's fate is connected to people from around the world so despite the fact that globalization has had definitely some very detrimental and pervasive effects on the planet, on the climate, on the relationships between countries. And there are many things that can be improved. There's no backstepping. There's no going back to the nation state. There's no reason to actually go back to other systems that have not worked. So it almost feels like when, when one looks at the way the United States is dealing with this, is it pushed for globalization. It created some rules. It led and allowed many of the countries around the world to join those rules including China, right? And when those countries got good at the rules that the United States had created and started winning at part of the game, the United States got angry and said, oh, I don't want to play anymore, which is almost ironic. So I think it would be good for the world to see some kind of change in, in the attitude, both from China, from the United States, and from other countries and institutions towards a more cooperative system so that we can all agree or at least find uh you know mechanisms to kind of deal with our differences absolutely so thank you all for tuning in today i think we definitely have learned a lot about the u.s china relationships especially during and after covid19 and how who and wto are going to be affected and have been affected already make sure you tune in next time for our next episode with the organization for world peace and thank you for joining mm -hmm.